You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. When I started writing stories, I realised all my memories are around music. Mm. That's how I latch on. I think for many people, a sense of taste or smell can often trigger them to go back to a moment and a memory. And for me, it's sometimes that, but it's always music. It doesn't matter. As soon as I hear music, then I can immediately put myself back to that moment. This Melbourne City Reads event was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Good evening. Um, before we begin today, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country, part of the East Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people in the audience tonight. I'm Zan Rowe. I am the host of Double J Mornings, the co-host of the Bang On podcast with this legend next to me. Are there any Bang Fam here? Um, And very, very stoked to be in conversation with the one and only Miff Warhurst. Where do you begin with Miff Warhurst? Um, An icon of radio and television. She's been in our lives for 20 years, at least. Maybe longer. And putting her life in your hands um, even further back with this brilliant debut memoir, Time of My Life. We know Miff from Spicks and Specs, from Triple J, from Double J, from Eurovision, from I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, (laughs) um, and so much more. And we're going to be talking a a lot about Miff's life and about this incredible book through tonight. Um, Before we get into this chat... I, uh, I just wanted to, to shout out that this, this is a special event as a part of a, an incredible debut series from the Wheeler Centre called Spring Fling. It's a short series of big ideas. It continues till Friday, so maybe you've seen some other things, but if you haven't, check out the website. There's more events happening and some wonderful conversations on this stage. Spring Fling is supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, which is a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. And this event was part of the Melbourne City Reads series, which is very generously supported by George and Rosa Morstan. So thank you very much for that. Our official bookseller tonight is reading. Some of you might have bought one of Miff's books, the book, um, with your ticket. If you did, then you can collect it from the bookseller after the event. The woman herself will be at the back of the room signing those books for you. Um, if you'd like to have it signed or if you just want to on-sell it to someone, that's fine. She won't yeah. write anything. <laughs> I think it's going for about $2.45 on eBay at the moment. So. <laughs> no, it's not. $7.45 oh, $7. <laughs> on eBay. I love it. Signed copy. <laughs> eBay watch. It's just going to go up. Let's push that, that price higher through tonight. Um, and following tonight as well, we're going to have some audience Q&A. So if you've got a question, park it in your brain and we'll definitely get our ushers um, towards the end to pass those mics around if you've got any questions for Miff, which I'm sure many of you do. So where do we begin, Miff Warhurst? Zanro, this, this is, this is, is your amazing. life. <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> it is weird to be interviewing your bestie, but um, here we are. Miff's done it to me and now it's payback time. <laughs> What was it about now that made you want to share these stories? Oh, goodness. I think, um, well, we're obviously all mostly from Melbourne. Um, I think the last two years in lockdown made me really kind of think about what I've done in my life and and wanting to put down those experiences just to kind of, I think, um, 
cap off this first 50 because I'm about to turn 50 next year and um, I thought it would be a wonderful way to kind of put it all together just for me personally um, and then I was approached by a publisher and and they loved what I'd written so it kind of went from there and I think it was just a really good way for me to knuckle down and do something in lockdown because mm. aside from Bang On, there wasn't much going on at all at my house. I was living alone. Um, I've got two cats and a dog and, and you know, I think I'd, I needed a project because there was just, yeah, it was a, it was a strange time and, and not, not a time I, I did unwillingly but it was it was difficult at times. So it was good to have something at least I could talk about that I had to do because, frankly, I didn't write most of it in lockdown. I wrote most of it when we came out. <laughs> when the I deadline was on hit. a deadline. <laughs> but I wrote the early chapters in lockdown and that was really nice. It was really nice to sort of have that time. I don't think I would have ever had that time to sit and think in such a way and, and consider and remember. Yeah. Because our lives are just, I mean, we're back doing it now. They're wild. Mm. Everyone's pushed and pulled in all sorts of directions. I don't think I would have had the headspace to do it had I not sadly been, you know, stuck on my own, bored out of my mind. <laughs> With Viv and Merv and Steve, of That's course. right. Which are the pets, not children, if you're wondering. <laughs> Although the neighbours, I'm sure they think I live with um, three, well, two men and a lady. <laughs> Sounds like a rom-com waiting to happen. The each for anybody who hasn't read the book, the each story is um, connected to a song, and and that idea of attaching a, a story to to a song. When did that first come to you? When did that make sense as a narrative kind of decision? Well, that's I think it's always been an idea that I've had, but when I started writing stories, I realised all my memories are around music. Mm. That's how I latch on. I think. For many people, a, set, a sense of taste or smell can often trigger, often trigger them to go back to a moment and a memory. And for me, it's sometimes that, but it's always music. Yeah. It doesn't matter. As soon as I hear, hear music, then I, I can immediately put myself back to that moment. And that was a really nice and easy way to access it. I mean, it's the same thing as what you do with Take Five, really. It, it opens doors and everybody has those doors. Yeah. And it's really lovely when you start to talk to other people about the types of music that that they have in their lives. And I think a lot of the time people think if you work in radio and, and in the music industry you've got this really great taste base and you, you understand all this stuff. But really I think a lot of the, the music, especially in your formative years, finds you. You don't find it, especially when, say, I was living up in a very remote community up near Mildura, um, top, in the top bit of Victoria, um, and we didn't have the internet. Like, can you imagine what that was like? Like, we were so isolated from the rest of the world and that's probably why I loved music too. So that's why all my memories are tied into that. I want to get to that idea of taste um, and and what is considered high and low brow or cool or uncool in, in in a little bit. But I'm kind of curious because you know that that daunting prospect of of sitting in front of a computer or a notepad or ho- however you write and thinking where do I begin? Can you remember what was the first story or the first memory that you were going to unravel to begin this book? It was definitely the Daryl Braithwaite memory. Um, <laughs> strong memory. <laughs> very strong memory because it's my first. It's my actual first memory, I think. I don't have any others, but as I go into in the book as well, 
memory is always subjective. It, it may be yours and then with history and storytelling within families, it, it, it can always change. So this may not be true at all, but the story was that I was sitting in the beanbag watching Countdown with my brothers on a Sunday night because my brothers loved music. They were all older than me, all three of them. And this song came on on the television and it just had me utterly entranced. But I think mostly because I thought it was about cricket because I loved cricket because I had three older brothers. So here I was just going, what's it? How's it? And then, and then, I, then of course, I discovered Daryl Braithwaite. <laughs> and he was wearing, you know, very tight pants in all the right places, all the wrong places, depending on what, you know, on what you, you believe in. But um, he had, he was shirtless and had a jacket, you know, with those huge 1970s lapels and uh, lapels. And I, I got up out of my beanbag apparently and I kissed the television. <laughs> When Daryl Braithwaite was singing. Did you get a little sizzle on your lips, those I old did. tube TVs? It was like, spark? Totally. Anybody who's under 30 is like, what is she talking about? It's so true. And the hair, like the electric hair. You just, <laughs> if you get, and mum going, don't get too close, you'll ruin your eyes. And I'm like, no, they never got ruined. It's fine. Um, but, yeah, poor Daryl, though. Like, he did not um, have any kind of consent over that kiss <laughs> whatsoever so he's completely out of this story um but I did tell him a couple of years ago when he came on Spicks and Specs that this was one of my earliest memories and poor Daryl <laughs> I mean what do you say when someone says thanks, thanks. yeah when Daryl hey Daryl yeah when I was four I kissed the television when you were on and he just looked at me and went okay <laughs> How much of a follow-up to that is there? No, nah, th- well, you can't. Did you, you can- go into detail about his pants? And- <laughs> no, no, no. Hopefully he never, he never reads the book. But he's a, <laughs> he's a delightful gentleman. I did a podcast, a, it was only about a year ago, talking about the uh, uh, the reason why that song Horses, which is a Ricky Lee Jones song that he covered and it was huge and everyone sings it everywhere, even in footy club rooms. It was about why that song has such a hold on so many of us here in Australia and I think it's basically because no one really knows why. It's got a bit of magic dust. It's not about anything. You can put your own stories onto that song to fit your own narrative. Mm. Anyway, so I said that and I said, you know, the reason why it's brilliant is because we don't know. It's it's It just hit the right note at the right time. And so he he rang me on, this is not in the book, he, I get this phone call <laughs> and this is only about a year ago. I was still in lockdown at this point so, you know, not much happening in my life. Phone rings and it was an unknown number so, of course, I picked it up because nothing happening in my life. <laughs> Normally I wouldn't. And um, I rang and he goes, G'day, Miff, it's Daryl Braithwaite. <laughs> and I've got to say, like, little me just went... <laughs> and what did he say? <laughs> Oh, he just thanked me for, for talking about the song. Oh, right. Yeah. So, and that was it. It was all very... I thought yeah. there was another reason why it wasn't in the book. <laughs> <laughs> just doesn't have an end. I've also got not much going on, so... <laughs> did, I mean, did you speak to your, to your friends and particularly your family who play mm. such a big part in this book and in your brothers? Did you speak to them about their recollections in remembering these stories? I should have, probably. Um, no, they're not upset with me, which is wonderful. Um, I didn't really talk to them because I feel like we've all talked about in our family all of these stories so much mm. that it's 
just a case of putting it down on paper now. So this is the kind of family that shares it around gatherings at Christmas. You remember those times and it becomes kind of folklore. Oh, absolutely. You're always going back to those memories. Absolutely. And, you know, mum and dad are pretty old these days and and they love to pull out a story that they've told ten times Mm -hmm. and we still laugh, which is beautiful, you know. But um, I feel like in a way this was just my way of you know, putting a full stop to it all and putting it down and and now the whole family's got it. So it's not just my stories. I feel like it's theirs as well because we lived such a wild childhood when I look back on it. Um, We had a little property on the Darling River up in New South Wales um, where we'd pick fruit. We had a fruit... um, plantation I guess and we'd go there in the in the holidays and pick fruit but we also mum and dad bought a w-class tram from the Melbourne City Council for 400 bucks in 1979 and they um they shipped it up to there and I mean most people up on outside it's outside of Wentworth in New South Wales most people there had never seen a tram in how their did life. they get it there on the back of a truck oh of course and it came over on a crane and we popped it up on Bessa bricks and and there it was and that became like bedrooms both ends kitchen in the middle and it was just wonderful like you know as a little kid it was just fantasy land mm. I got to drive a tra- tram every day I'd be like <laughs> see you later <laughs> I'd be out the front, you know, driving, having a gorgeous time. But I was—I feel really lucky that I had that, and I wanted to put that down for for all of the family too, because I think I think we all, when we look back now and, and kind of look at the the types of lives that we live now, admittedly, work-wise, my, it's all you know very exciting. But I think we're quite conservative in the way that we live compared to my parents, which is interesting because they're very conservative people, and yet they did these wild things like buy a tram and we build a mud brick house together as a family. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's really reminded me, I think, what value choosing to live differently gave me as a kid. You know, I didn't choose, they chose for me. But, like, it, I think it gave me a sense of adventure. Well, they say, yeah, it certainly seems as though they basically gave you a green light of anything is possible. Mm. And also that beautiful, um, I guess, cornerstone of growing up in the 70s and 80s, which is um, not helicopter par- parenting. And by the time that they get to Miff or me, who are both the youngest, Couldn't they don't give, give a, fuck. a shit anymore. Could not give a fuck about <laughs> us. All the best. Yeah, see you later. Here's a house key. You can walk home from school at yeah, age eight. It's absolutely. Fine. And if you're thirsty, drink out of a tap in someone's front yard. <laughs> but do you think that that sort of that shaped who you were as an independent person? Because you did, you had these great guiding lights, which are so beautiful. Your brothers, who you know, you have very close relationships with to this day. Mm. But to have that um, growing up, did, did that form who you were? Absolutely. Yeah, I think being a part of a unit like that and they 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 guided me because they were older than me and I didn't know any different and look they could have told me anything and I would have loved it because like I said we were we were pretty isolated there was no no internet to be able to kind of play around with ideas of things you might be into you really we had one record store and that was also not just a record store um and I was reminded of this actually I didn't include it in the book but you'll know now I don't think I included it it was also a sewing machine store (laughs) so you could get your banana or banini or whatever the sewing machine and and also you know the top gun soundtrack if you wanted Mixed business. Yeah, it was. It was very mixed business. <laughs> there was a lot going on in the threading section. <laughs> <laughs> I 
don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means either. <laughs> Reading into everything tonight. Did, did getting outside of yourself to write this memoir and look back at those times, even though you had repeated them at every family gathering, but really take, you know, something, there's something about putting something down on a page that makes you see things differently, almost view your life in a more objective way. Did it make you see your family dynamics any differently? Um, or your brothers or your relationship with your brothers? I think in, in a lot of ways it's made me a lot closer I mean I don't think I could possibly get much closer with my brothers you mm. know Kit and Andre we we, we socialise all together and have continued to for the last 25 years so um but I think just yeah that they, they were so proud and and that was really lovely like Kit actually pulled me aside and said we are really proud of you you know and that's just such a lovely a lovely thing because I think they appreciated it too yeah yeah I want to um, talk a little bit about this celebration of music, which has lived throughout your whole life. And, and we sort of touched on it earlier, that there is no judgment of, of taste in this book and certainly not in knowing you. There's never been that way. You've, you love everything broadly and equally and you've never been a cynical or snobby person with music, at least in, in my dealings with you over many, many years. Oh, I can be in my private time. I'm horrible. <laughs> Keep the magic alive. But this... Um, but this really feels fueled by growing up in the country. You know, you're growing up in, in this sort of uh, these relatively isolated places of, of Donald and Sunraysia and, and Red Cliffs. Do you think that that isolation, places that didn't have much more than the local ABC radio station mm. um, and maybe the community station that was probably playing, you know, a certain kind of music as well, do you think that shaped who you was, that you sort of had blinkers in some ways in early years? Absolutely. I, I mean, it was basically country music, I think, on the commercial station, what was it three, three MA was the name of the station, and then we'd get Casey Kasin's Top One Hundred, American Top that's Forty, it, Top Forty, that's it. And I'd listen. Speaking to... of sensory memory, everyone just went, yeah. "Oh God, I'm near the radio and I'm twelve again." <laughs> and that was pretty much it. That and Countdown and maybe Sounds on Sunday. So I, I was really, as a little kid, quite obsessed with country music mm. because when we'd go up to the block, all the you know, all the blokes working on the... The bush block? Yeah, on the farm and stuff would just have the radio blaring out of there, holding newt, and um, it was always just country music, so it gave me this great love. Like, you know, I, I don't... I can't imagine these days a, a six-year-old being in love with Wichita lineman, you know? Like, <laughs> it's really was, speaking to me. <laughs> yeah, it really did, though, because, you know, you think about those beautiful words. I'm the lineman of the county and I drive the main road and then he's searching for something... Um, through the wires, like trying to find a connection with someone mm. out in the middle of nowhere. And I think a lot of those country songs really spoke of that that sense of disconnect and wanting to connect. And I didn't really know what I was trying to connect to mm. at that point. But there was a, there was a sense of openness and, and emptiness as well. It, was, it wasn't melancholy, but I certainly, I think I identified with that. And so it's pretty weird that I just loved, you know, Charlie Pride. I loved him. I loved all of those sort of, oh, and Kenny Rogers, obviously, and Dolly, you know, all those 60s and 70s country stars. And um, and when I got to Melbourne, the big smoke, you know, I, I hadn't really worked out who I was or what I was into. I was a bit embarrassed of some of my early tastes I guess I tried to you know and I and I fell in love with other things and I and the world opened for me but um I, I think I was probably a bit embarrassed of, of the limited 
knowledge that I had. But now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, my God, I was so lucky to have that. What an that. education. Yeah, I was so lucky to have that. And also vindicated, like Kenny and Dolly, they were a bit of a, considered a bit of a joke back in the 80s. Kenny looked like Santa. Dolly had the big boobs, the big hair, the baubles and... You know, and I think they weren't paid the respect that perhaps they deserved because now, I mean, totally vindicated. Dolly Parton, if she was the President of the United States right now, it would be be okay. okay. (laughs) We'd be more than okay. Yeah, she's amazing. She's a philanthropist. She's the smartest woman in the room. Yeah. She's, you know, she's done incredible things. So I feel really lucky that Mm. even though it started like that and I wasn't sure it was a good thing, I learnt as I've gotten older, it doesn't matter where you start as long as you start somewhere. And you had the curiosity the whole time. I wanted to ask you, if you would, to read one of um, my favourite passages of the book that had me howling when I was reading it. Um, Howling with laughter or or with pain? No, with laughter, (laughs) with laughter. Um, Just to set up this this section that Miff's going to read, Miff's in Redcliffs. Uh, The nearest big city to Redcliffs is Adelaide and you're on your way to your very first gig. Mm. Okay. It's very hot up here too, by the way. We are just sweating. You look great. Sweating buckets up here. Also, I'm wearing Spanx, so <laughs> that can tend to heat up the core a little bit. So if I'm, if I'm showing off my shorts as well, you're lucky. Um, okay. The gig was Australian singer Jimmy Barnes at Theberton Oval. That's in Adelaide for those of you who don't know. I was a mad cold chisel fan at this stage. It's a rural rite of passage to recite all the words to flame trees at the end of a night out. Working class man had been a phenomenal hit for the now solo Barnsey. The catch was I had to hop on a bus from Mildura in the morning, travel for six hours to Adelaide, go to the gig and then find my bus at the end of the show. We didn't have phones, by the way, at around midnight to head home. It was almost a 24-hour round trip and I couldn't be more excited. I was getting out sans parents and seeing a proper live show with thousands of others like I'd seen on the telly. This was real adult stuff and somehow I was allowed to do it. Previously, very few live acts came to our neck of the woods and if I had wanted to go, I hadn't been allowed to. Dipping back into the Judy Bloom diary for a sec. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was an actual Judy Bloom diary <laughs> where you put your thoughts down to, on a page. Um, they call that journaling now. Um, there's an entire page dedicated to how much I hated my mum for not letting me go to the Irimple Leisure Centre to attend the Blue Light Disco featuring two of the hottest Australian bands at the time, Wawani and Geisha. (laughs) I hate mum. I hate mum. I hate mum. I hate mum. This is real. I hate mum. I wrote as only a frustrated teen could. I'm not making this up. This is real. It's not fair. She won't even let me go to the blue light. I hate her. She says I can go when I'm old enough. Well, when's bloody old enough? (laughs) When I'm about 20, I'll probably be able to go, but I will be too old by then. (laughs) It's really a big joke to you, Mum, isn't it? Well, I hate you very much. Well, Mum and Dad, one day I'm going to do something that you're, spelt Y-O-U-R, not going to like. But do you think I care? No, I don't. I will just tell you to go suck eggs, you squares. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want any more? Oh, she wants more. 
Oh, to be a parent of a teenager. Wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But when the Barnsley gig came up and I asked if I could go, something had shifted in my folks and they deemed me old enough to finally get a taste of what I so deeply desired. So with a few friends who'd also been given a leave pass, I got on that bus in my best outfit, which was a T-shirt from Sports Girl that said Sports Girl on the front, (laughs) and I was ready to take on the world. And it was amazing. We shared Thebiton over with thousands of others, talked to strangers, warded off weirdos, took sips from a flagon of goon wine from someone nearby, and to be frank, saw absolutely nothing of the concert. (laughs) Given in those days the big screens weren't common and I'm five foot one if I'm lucky. So while I loved every second and thought I'd caught a glimpse or two of Barnsley and of guitarist Johnny Diesel's head, I saw very little of the actual performance. Strangely, it didn't dampen my enthusiasm for more. I bought a T-shirt as a souvenir and wore it to death with my button-up Levi 501 jeans and thought I was the coolest gal in town. I had been to a rock concert. The fire had been lit. (laughs) So good. As, As your little teenage brain cooked... And on that long bus road, you know, right home to Mildura, did, did that open up a possibility in front of you of like, wow, there's this world out there and I, and I want to be in that world? Mm. Well, yeah, previously it had been provided by the TV and the radio because it was literally the window to our worlds in those days. And I worked at the local news agents with Lucinda, who might be here, I think. Are you here, Luce? She's too embarrassed to know me. <laughs> I think she used the outsource. Yeah, and we, we worked together at the news agency from when we were 14. And, um, and so magazines would also become a way that we looked at the world. But then once I'd gotten out of town and gone to the big smoke, which was Adelaide, saw a few skyscrapers, which were 10 storeys high, <laughs> um, I was ready. Like, that was it. It was, yeah, the world was about to change. Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like when you were a little kid, what were your dreams? I think I said I wanted to be a fish when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> so that's what, that's another. Oh, that's not in the book because there's no no point to that one. But um, <laughs> but I did. Apparently, I said I wanted to be a fish, um, and I never knew anything else. So I, I never knew what I, I still don't know. <laughs> I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Just one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Your, your capture of the 90s when you moved to Melbourne is so visceral and brilliant, you know, that taste for being in a, a big city grows because you decide to move to Melbourne to, to go to university when you're pretty young because you sort of have to make that decision when you're 17, right? Mm. And you move in um, to a share house with your brother Kit and then experience this sort of whole Melbourne vibe, which is, um, for me, and I'm sure anyone who's read the book or is going to read the book, is going to be um, a parallel existence to your life, which is visceral and scary. I'm talking Docklands raves, when Docklands wasn't full of apartments. Um, $1 Still pots. a wind tunnel, <laughs> as it is today. $1 pots, uh, venues that have since closed. The two weeks the gas went off, remember when that happened? That was horrific. That was in the 90s. That was the 90s. I had to look it up as I was writing. That's my research for the book. (laughs) (laughs) Melbourne gas crisis. I mean, this this city, when you move to the city, there's such a beautiful big lead up in your country life, which I loved personally because it's not a part of your life that I had shared much with you in, in knowing you. But 
Melbourne looms large almost like a character in this story mm. as well too, doesn't it? Did being back home in Melbourne after years overseas and, and in Sydney and in other places, did that help you with your sensory memory as you were writing this book? Oh, absolutely. I don't think I could have written this book anywhere but here. Um, I, yeah, it, it's almost as if I needed to come back to it to write about it mm. because I think for, it, like many of us, we, we establish our lives here and we become the the adults that we are and we move away or we stay or whatever and it, I think sometimes you've got to distance yourself from from the ones you love and I, I love this city um, but it was good to get away and live in Sydney or live in London for a couple of years and, and then come back and, and really see it for the, the amazing formative education that this place gave me and I, I'm not much of a you know I'm not really into nostalgia like I'm not very I'm not good at nostalgia I, I I prefer to look forward. But the beautiful thing about writing this book was that I realised that, that, you know, I don't think the music from the 90s is the best music ever. I think every every generation has their own music and it's it's equally as good for them and it's it's always different and, and that's totally fine. But what I do recall about that time in the 90s was that this place was alive with it. It was literally crawling with, you know, new styles of music. Um, think about the explosion of dance music and hip-hop and indie rock and roll and um, there was just so much going on in this town and it, you could go out any night of the week, as you still can if you choose to, but I'm too old. Um, <laughs> um, I don't bounce back like I used to. But, the, you know, that the, it felt like it was... A, it, it was also a time of incredible possibility in the 90s here in Melbourne and I, and the Australian music, if you want to call it an industry, it's, I, I always feel a bit uncomfortable calling it an industry because it's creatives. Mm. But the, the music that we were making was, was, was just totally different to anything else that had been going on before and it was amazing. So I feel really lucky. Do you feel as though you kind of found your tribe, your community? For someone who, yeah, who was seeking out that, who was kind of had this curiosity leading you somewhere that you didn't necessarily know where it would end up, mm. that once you got here, you've, you know, you found your crew and you figured out where things were going to be? Yeah, absolutely, because I started, I, well, I came here to study piano um, at uni. I was going to be a classical pianist or a, or a music teacher, either one. Um, that didn't work out because... Having to practice for five hours a day was not high on my agenda when I was seventeen and moved to Melbourne. Um, but I, I, I got but Miff will play Phil Collins out uh, to send you off That's at two a.m. at every house party, perfectly on it's her the grand only thing piano. I, against all odds, it's the only thing I can remember now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, gosh, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry, I interrupted. No, no. Just finding your crew. Your oh tribe. yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, and studying and going oh yeah, to I was going to yeah. study music, but then I I started I stopped doing that course and then I started writing about music, and that's how I really found my tribe, and that was through I don't know if you guys remember Impress Magazine, it used to be a free weekly newspaper before the internet where they'd have a gig guide, and interviews and all those sort of things, and it was you know rough as guts, but we loved it and it was essential reading. It really was. It was like appointment reading to work out what you're doing for the next. Week and, and find yourself in the gig photos from the week before. Oh yes, and also the club photos too. They would come in. We used to have no a, filters there. No. Well, that's the thing. Back in those days, the club photographers would just bring the photos in, and we saw it all. <laughs> all the stuff that would never go to print. Like if I had those photos today, you'd be sitting on a gold mine. We used to love it. Like club photos. <laughs> 
and we'd write the horoscopes as well, just FYI. <laughs> they were great. I mean, through all this period, you're capturing, you know, a, a life so far and there is so much detail. It always astounds me in memoir when people can do that. You mentioned the Judy Bloom diary, but did you keep... Um, diaries or, or journals through your life? Like, where did you draw these memories from to capture all of these these stories? Well, there was only the Judy Bloom diary and one other, and I literally wrote that page when I hated my mum, and I think there was another page about a boy, and then I was useless, which is pretty much the story of my life, really. Really committed initially, really open to it, just go, I'm going to write this, this diary, and it's <laughs> going to be amazing, and I'm going to be like Jane Eyre, and it's going to be awesome, but... um. No, it was two pages. And then there was the other one. There was the other one that was much younger and it was probably um, where I wrote I was going to diet. I don't know if you, you remember that bit yes. in the book, you know. I, was, I must have been eight years old or something. And Again, I, highly relatable. Yeah, and I, I'd already I was, I was taking in those messages from the media about what I thought I should look like and what we saw on the telly and I realised I wasn't it. So there's a couple of pages on in there it's probably about four entries in that one it's the world's most boring diary today I went to school and then I came home but then the the diary page where I've I've got this diet and I'm I'm gonna lose weight and I'm gonna do all this at eight fortunately my inability to stick to anything came through and it like there was no more entries on that one but yeah I made sure in my diet I had a big M the big M girls were very important in my life. I just had to have that. <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about that, about these kind of, you know, the messages that we that we get and the way that we see ourselves in the world and, and dieting as a, as a young, I think, female, speaking personally for myself, is, is something that felt like it's, you know, always been with us from a very young age. Mm. But one of the things that I really, um, I, I guess, sort of picked up on in the book as well, running parallel to your story, was this you know, reflection of the changing of, of, of media as well, particularly because you're in the media and you're consuming media, but then you're making that media as well. Hmm. And social media comes up um, in, in your time, you know, in the, in the 90s and the 2000s, and you sort of talk about how, you know, acknowledge how tough it is for kids coming up and how different it was for you um, without that gaze in particular. Yeah. Has, you know... Have you reflected on that a lot while you've been telling your story and just how much social media has, has shifted the way that we share our stories in ourselves? Absolutely. And I, I genuinely don't think if social media had been around when something like Spix and Specs started, we were terrible. Those first few episodes, we didn't know what we were doing. I had no idea. Um, I don't think we would have survived. And, and I, in a way, I, I, I guess, because I think the, the knock-on effect of that is it makes bosses frightened to commit to things because they can't deal with the blowback of it. And it's just this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, really, isn't it, when you, everyone gets a bit afraid mm. because, you know, newspaper articles that print people's tweets, like, what the fuck is that? That's not news. But it is now. And I think that's had a huge effect on probably how people feel about how much they're prepared to put out there, how creative they're prepared to be or show themselves, whereas we were really lucky, you know, we just put it out there and, and we were terrible. Like we, we got word from the big bosses that there needed to be changes. 
but they we had space and time and yeah. you know th- there would have been a couple of phone calls to the ABC saying how how rubbish we were but that would have been it and um yeah I do I do think in I wouldn't have the the hide to cope with the criticism I don't think if I'd started now mm. um so I feel quite lucky for that and I, I I do I think kids that put themselves out there today they're amazing yeah you know like it's it's tough it's almost tougher than than we had it I think yeah um so much more you've got to be knowledgeable on and that's why kids seem so uh, so much they're so much more savvy about the world because they have to be mm. whereas we were just dickheads we didn't have <laughs> I mean I didn't like we didn't have makeup tutorials we just put any old shit on and hoped it looked good you know oh my god my makeup is so much better in my 40s than it was <laughs> in my teens <laughs> Look terrible. It's just like ah. I know. We didn't care. We didn't care because we weren't getting all of that. We get a, got it a little bit and yeah. it permeated, but we weren't getting it all. And I think our too, bubble was smaller. Yeah, and I think too when I was doing something like Spicks and Specs, which was very public, I didn't get that kind of. You know, the most I got was a lovely ABC viewer saying, "Oh, I enjoyed your show last night when I was in <laughs> when I was in the hot chicken shop the next night." Like that was about it. So. Well, Spicks and Specs is part of a brilliant broadcast life that you've had, you know, which began when you started doing graveyard shifts at Triple R and then, you know, we really got to know you on a public level, dropping into American Rosso's Drive Time show, taking up the lunch shift on Triple J, doing the Net 50, speaking of the 90s. The internet, it's new. Have you heard of it? <laughs> you can vote for your favourite song on the internet. <laughs> And how did they collate those? Didn't they print them out on a dot matrix printer <laughs> yep. and collate them? Yep. It was amazing. And I made Richard it up. Richard Kingsmill was just like, stop. <laughs> no, I made it up sometimes because sometimes I couldn't make it work. So I just put some songs in. Because you could do that. Like it was a lot looser back in those days. When, when did you know, when did you go from being the music editor and the editor at large at Impress Magazine and think to yourself, okay, I think I want to get behind the mic and broadcast and and then become a presenter when did that itch begin I don't know I think it was all part of it I just I I wanted to be with the when I was in the in the paper I wanted to share my knowledge I wanted to I wanted to learn and I wanted to share my knowledge and I think the same goes with with music that's how radio came about I just I just wanted to learn and share and Mm. and I think that's what we both do in a way we we both Choosing a broadcast career or a, or a media career, you, you, you're not just uh, broadcasting. You, you, you're sharing other people's stories, but you're also sharing your own. And and I think that's what it was that really drew drew me to it. And radio is a drug. It's and it's the best drug. I don't know if you guys have ever done radio, but it's adrenaline. It's immediate. It's it's more immediate than any other form of media. I think of all that I've done. Um, and connected too. Yeah, and it connects and, you know, and you also can't um, pretend on radio, I don't think, because if you do, that would be exhausting. So you, you actually have to show yourself a lot and, and there's something really honest about it and I think that's why people love it and you are in their ears and you're in their, in their homes and in their cars. It's, it's pretty special, you know, people talk about it disappearing, but I don't think it will. 
No. And I think also what your experience has been is also testament to who you are because who you are off the mic is the same as who you are on the mic. It's... That's not always a good thing. No, though. it's a great thing. I, I wish I had an act. I really do. Because, you know, like I saw that when I was with Fix and Specs, all those wonderful comedians, you know, and they've got jokes and answers and, you know, all that. And I was like, oh, just me. Um but, yeah, I think radio's kind of been good to me in that sense because I get to just be me. But that sense of magic and quick-wittedness quick and, and, you know, and radiance is what has, you know, given you the opportunities and, and you've made those opportunities happen as well. And thinking particularly about the, the joy that you bring to Eurovision every year now as you and Joel Creasy host not just the big event but also Australia Decides. Yeah. I mean, you know, you are a Eurovision tragic from childhood. Can yeah. you, what was it like when that call came through? Oh, my God, that was amazing because um, Julia, Zamira and Sam Pang decided they didn't want to do it anymore and now that we've done it for seven years, we kind of go, yeah, it's a big it's a big job. Mm. It looks really glamorous but it's a lot on the ground, you know, you, you sort of working crazy hours and um, it's pretty full on but... Um, I was amazed because, you know, SBS came to our town just before I left, I think a couple of years before I left, and I saw, oh, well, I saw SBS World Movies on Saturday night. (laughs) A lot. Speaking of expanding your horizons. Yeah. Oh, my God, didn't we all? (laughs) Um, Well, there was nothing else, and and I think I go into it. You You can't get anything like, you know, everyone in town knows who you are, so Saturday nights are in. We're not going out on Saturday nights. We're just going to watch the world movies. Um, but when Eurovision came, I, I realised too, because Mildura is a very, or Sunrise is a very multicultural area, um, a lot of families had, had, had moved there from Europe because the, the terrain was very similar, mm. very dry, um, irrigated. They knew what to do with the land. They made it work after it was previously a soldier settlement, which was one of the kind of great failed public... Um, uh, disasters, I think. They sent a whole bunch of very damaged men out into the middle of absolutely nowhere and just gave them a bit of land and went, go for it. And they had to pay it back. It was almost impossible. Um, it was one, it, I think it was being documented as one of the... A few families did really well, but a, most couldn't cope. It was, it was really tough. Um, but when um, lots of families had moved to Mildura or Sunraysia, Eurovision was a way for them to connect with their family at home mm. in real time, i.e., again, without the internet. So I could see that connection there and the value of it, even though it is just a, you know, it's a big head, big dress, wind machine, pyrotechnics, all of that, big ballads, all of that kind of singing competition. It's more than that. Like, yeah. it's a real connector. And, and I think I've always had a really special kind of place in my heart for it because of it. And Eurovision is going to be happening next year. We can now say that. Yes. As in, obviously it is, but you'll be hosting. We're going to go. We'll be in Liverpool. Yeah. Home of the Beatles. So, you know, I'll be lining up with 700 other people to the Beatles' house on a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) The the stories of your life, um, you know, are very – I guess we're kind of tracking this sort of public life and getting a beautiful insight into what was happening behind the scenes, getting an insight into your childhood as well. But there's also a private life that you share in this book, uh, the death of a good friend, Richard Marsden – sorry, Richard Marsland, and also uh, the loss of a a great love in Mike. Did you 
you know, sharing a memoir is a personal choice. You can choose how much you give to people that you don't know. Did you waver on whether or not you would share that story? Oh, I, I don't think I could have done it before spending that much time with myself. Like, mm. I, I just don't think I could have because I've always been a bit protective of my very personal life. Um, but I, I don't know, I just felt like it was... I, I, I'm at a point now where I, I don't have anything to hide and I don't... And it's okay to show who you are. And I think I've kind of realised that in the last couple of years. It's okay to just, you know, for people to know where you're at rather than trying to put on a face or to, to, to hide it. And, yeah, and, I, and and writing about Mike was not, I think, not just about me. I, I wanted to do it for him because he's not here anymore and we spent six years together and had some of the best adventures you could ever have. And I, I felt... In a way, I owed it to him because he's not here to to show you what a you know what a wonderful person he was, um, and to his family too, you know. And I, and I wanted to honour our memories that we'd made because I'm the keeper of those now. He's not there, but it also I wanted to be honest about the fact that it you know he and I didn't end well, and that there are regrets and that there are things unsaid and all of that stuff. Um, and that life is complicated and messy and and difficult and um, but I figured if people are on this ride with me, they might as well know all of it um, and I, I I consulted his family too. I made sure they were across what what I was what I was doing and what I'd written about and um, yeah, because I didn't want to make it about me. It, but it was, but it wasn't. It's it's a really fine line, I think. But I just felt I owed it to him, you know, because, like I said, he's not here to, to show you how fabulous he is, you know, and was. So it it, it was a way of honouring him. It was it was beautifully done. I, don't, I really hate using the word brave, but it was a very brave sharing. And it was also and is also very you, you know. This whole book is your voice. Um, I'm so proud of you. I have such a privilege of being your friend. I'm going to get caught up now. (laughs) Um, But I'm just, you make me so happy and so proud. Oh, I love you. Stop Um, it. (laughs) And, you know, when we talk about this one wild and precious life, you know, you've you've lived it, you're living it. So um, kudos to you, Miff Warhurst. Thank you, Zan. And I'm mighty glad you're in it. I'm mighty glad you're in it. And what an amazing interviewer she is. Oh, my God. This it's is an like, amazing this book. Is, this is like staying in, um, I don't know, the, the Ritz or something, being interviewed by you. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You can have a late checkout. Yeah. Can I order a pillow from the menu? <laughs> But you there are, are multiple you, pillow options at my hotel, absolutely. You are extraordinary, so thank you. As are you, yeah. my dear friend. Um, I think we should open it up to some questions from the audience. If there's anything that, and I'm sure there is, that you want to know that I didn't ask, just raise your hands and ushers will come around um, and, and hand you a microphone before you can share your question. 
Hi, Mev. Thanks for sharing your memories today. Hello. I had a question about Eurovision. Are yeah. there any funny moments or lost in translation cultural issues you wanted to share that stand out for you? Uh, look, the very first broadcast, I don't even know where you are, sorry, where are you sort of oh, in the middle there? The very first broadcast, um, which I've written about in the book, was in Ukraine, um, interestingly enough, and, and tragically um, too. Um, Joel and I, we hadn't worked together before and we were keen and, and people online were kind of not really into us taking over, um, which makes sense. People don't like change. Um, and so we're desperate to do a really great job and um, and it was a bit like where our booth was, it was all a bit wobbly and like you're right up high in the gods and everything's a little bit you know, put together for that week and then it all gets dismantled. So it's pretty extraordinary anyway. But our very first broadcast, we go to Hello Australia after the music, you know, the Eurovision music, and all of a sudden we've lost our connection with Australia. So we don't even know if we're talking to home and then it starts feeding back to us in our headphones. So we're like, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it sounds like you start slurring your words. It, it happens when you're on satellite and if your voice comes back, you're like, Hello, uh, welcome to yours. And it just happens. Like it, it's it's the most bizarre experience. So that that happened and we had we had like all the sound guys just screaming at us while we're on air, get, get it off, get off the air, get off. And it, was, it was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. <laughs> And Joel and I ended up after that, we were like so down and everyone hated us and thought we were useless. And so we sat in, um, there's a burger chain in in um, Ukraine called Star Burger. And that's where Joel and I decided that if it all goes to shit, we were going to start a chain of Star Burgers here in Australia. <laughs> we're about to give it all up for Star Burger. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you. I've just ordered Gladys Knight's autobiography and I wonder whether there are biographies or autobiographies of musicians, singers and so on that have been very meaningful to you. Oh, that's a great question because I've, I've read a lot over the years and it's funny what sticks. Um, Ronnie Spector, who was married to Phil Spector, wrote an incredible biography, autobiography back in the 80s and she was obviously doing it, she, she certainly hadn't had a resurgence at that point um, and I guess I hadn't been privy to, I didn't know anything about the the nature of Phil Spector and, and, and what, what an awful person he was and she wrote in the most honest and open way, I've never read, I'd, I'd never read a book like it and I'll never forget it because it just, I think it completely flipped my understanding of the music industry and that type of person that dominated and dominated her and so many other artists. Um, and I was quite shocked by it and I remember thinking, how did this even get through? But but now in the Me Too era, you, you know that, that, that this happened all the time but this was one of the first that I'd ever read and and she's an amazing woman 
incredible. So I think that really stuck with me. But then also Rod Stewart's um, <laughs> biography stuck with me too because he did a whole chapter where he talked about how he and Ronnie Wood came up with their hairstyles <laughs> and how Ronnie Wood showed him how to use a hairdryer. Oh, I just laughed for days. Like it was like... <laughs> It was a whole chapter just on their hairstyles and I was like, now that's a book. <laughs> uh, hello, thank you. Um, firstly, I just wonder if you could tell us where you think your love of music comes from. Is it innate, ingrained where, from your parents, from your family? And then secondly, if I can squeeze one in, um, who was a surprise, who surprised you the most as a guest on Spicks and Specs, good or bad? Oh, um... I think I think everyone has an innate love of music. As I get older, I think you watch kids, and you watch them respond to music, and it's 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 in us. It's what we've been doing since the beginning of time. We love to commune together. We love to enjoy performance. We are. It's it's a human need, I think. Um, so I think it's it's in all of us. It's whether or not you. I, I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by people. Dad plays the piano. And they would, mum and dad would put on musicals and stuff in the the town that we lived in. My brothers played. So I was lucky enough to be around people that kind of encouraged it. But I think it's in, I, I truly believe it's in everybody. Um, just kind of gets kicked out of some people, I think. And they get embarrassed or, or it, it gets too hard. Um, but, yeah, I was really fortunate to have that. Um, and most surprising guest on Spicks and Specs... Oh, God. There was a lot. Um, I think someone like Richard Gill, who is also no longer with us, who was a um, classical uh, conductor but just such a knowledgeable person about music and recognised that this wasn't his audience necessarily, even though Speaks and Specs covered a lot of a lot of ground and a lot of styles and a lot of genres and that, that's what I think made it a success. But he knew how to communicate about what he loved and share that with other people. And it, it didn't matter what he said. Whenever he opened his mouth, it was genius. And he was he was incredible. And I just loved being around him. You know, there's certain people you just love being around. He had that effect. He was, he was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Uh, and in terms of music knowledge, the best Australian music knowledge I've ever come across, aside from Zanro, obviously. Um, <laughs> She's just saying that because I'm here. no. Uh, Murray Wiggle from the Wiggles. He True. knows everything. Yeah. Yeah. And he loves everything. He loves everything. He's not burnt out because he's been hanging out with kids, <laughs> not adults. He's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's joyful. Yeah. Uh, another question? Hi. Oh, sorry. Just... Hi, Murph. Sorry. This is a question about your future. Um, very excited to hear about you taking part in the Rocky Horror Show. I think it would be fantastic. Just wanted to know if you're doing any preparation and how your time warp is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the only preparation I've done thus far is it's just a jump to the left. <laughs> That's it. That's my line. That's my actual line. And the rest of it I read a book. Like, I don't even have to learn my lines if I don't want to. It's like a dream job. Like, <laughs> I cannot believe it. And Jason Donovan. Like, let's not tell him I'm excited about that because I'm a professional. But, like, 13-year-old me knows all the words to especially for you. I don't want him to think I'm a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> that's opening in theatres next year, by yeah. the way. Oh, you yes, that's right. Sydney. Oh, they announced Melbourne too. We're doing Melbourne. At the Athenaeum. 
I'll be pretty good with that line by then. <laughs> it's just a jump to the left. It'll be coated with gold by then. <laughs> uh, next question. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, just firstly, uh, I just want to know, uh, firstly, how my Don Johnson album is going. Oh, you gave me that. I'm, I'm not here. <laughs> I'm at the front. That's you down the front? Uh, yes, and I... I it was a long story. A long time ago, I gave her a record. I just want to know what is the most um, odd or out there record, even CD, in your collection? Um, Don Johnson, for those who don't know, was the star of Miami Vice, who also proceeded to then try and have a musical career. Um, it wasn't bad, though, if I remember correctly. It was a little bit electro and a little bit weird. Um, because I've got the CD as well. Oh. <laughs> yeah, spare copies. I reckon that's fair. Um, right. And I reckon I got the good end of the deal of that. I got the vinyl, so that's good. Um, oh. I think the one that would get the biggest reaction because at the time no one thought that he was he would even do it was um, Bruce Willis's Return of Bruno. <laughs> Because he did a, like a bluesy album on the. Was he wearing like a cap with that one? No, he had the cap off, but he had a white singlet, sort of Bruce Springsteen style. Oh, yeah. And he did a lot of harmonica, so. Um, terrible record. Not a lot, uh, you know. But love Bruce, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't a wasn't a great one. But <laughs> that surprised me. I was like, whoa! The eighties were wild. Cocaine was great. <laughs> they just went. I can do anything. And they did. I think we've got time for another couple of questions. Anybody else? Um, I just wanted to ask about Bang On and how Bang On came to be. I think, Zan, you can answer that. Ironically, um, (laughs) I'm about to head to the event that spurred it all. So we went to um, every sort of year, Miff and I would go to the ABC Parliamentary Showcase, um, which is a sort of... It doesn't make sense, but it's um, it, it makes sense when I explain it. It sounds weird. Basically, a whole bunch of ABC personalities go along to Parliament House and um, put a human face to the politicians that are going to pay our wages, make them feel good about the ABC, and we um, ha- have a you know say hello and stuff. And I think that it was when we were in these halls of power that we um, and we'd been talking a little bit about you know we'd often shared conversations about things because we've worked together on and off in various guises for many many years, and we've always had great conversations about. Just everything, music, art, life and stuff. Um, And we were in Parliament House and we had a few wines and then I think in the cab on the way home we were just like, we should start a freaking podcast. We were those pricks who were like, we've got opinions, let's start a podcast. (laughs) And so we did. Um, I remember it was, though, a couple of days later, Beyonce's Lemonade came out. Yeah. And... I texted you or you texted me and we were furiously texting on a Sunday night going, this is the shit. We need to talk about this. Yeah. And then we had no avenue because we both had our own radio shows. I mean, we could have just talked to each other, but we thought that you really needed to hear the conversation. This is our public service to you. Yes, yes. So that's how it all began. It was just, you know, a friendship that was, you know, a a tennis game as well of, of chatting about stuff and we thought... Then, you know, there's a there's a space for this, and so we gave it a go, and um, very gratefully, it, it was accepted and supported, and um, we've ha- now got this amazing Bang Fam community. I know, which is just it like blows us away. So thank you to everyone who's yeah. who listens. And I write about that in the book too. You know, like during lockdown when it was pretty weird and, and life got pretty dark, and 
it was, for me, it was very much, it was a, an appointment every week. It gave me something to look forward to. It made me think about the world outside, all that stuff. And so it was hugely meaningful to be able to do that during that time and, and have the support of everyone listening. I felt, I felt really, you know, for want of a, a better wellness term, I felt held. <laughs> I but, did though, like genuinely, yeah. yeah, genuinely, I did. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question, and I'm not going to take it this time. This is all myth. <laughs> um, sorry if this is in the book. I haven't quite got there yet. Um, you've had such an amazing career, Miff. If you had to pick one absolute favourite that gave you the most joy, what would that be? <sighs> You don't have to say bang on, it's okay. <laughs> bang on. Um, I don't know. I genuinely don't know the answer to that. They've all, I've all, everything has been, you know, difficult and fun at the same time and extraordinary and, I don't know, the most joy. Oh, I think probably leaving the jungle when I was in I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> Oh, I couldn't wait to get out of there. That was foul. I mean, but also incredibly transformative in terms of, I guess, you know, when you talked about initially bring it back to writing this book, I don't think I could have written this book had I not had that experience yeah. too because I'd spent my life, you know, being a radio presenter and not giving of myself and I, when I went into the jungle I was forced to be myself and that was it and and forced into all sorts of situations and, you know, eating impala anus and... <laughs> Things, things like that. It's true. It's true. Truly nose to tail. Yeah, it was nose to tail dining in there. Um, and, and yeah, but yeah, that was probably one of the most transformative experiences I've ever had, as, as strange as it was. And, so, and how, you know, a lot of people said, oh, how very on ABC, you know, because I was very much known as an ABC personality, but it was actually one of the best things I ever did. I met a whole bunch of people I never, would never know otherwise and push myself in ways I never thought possible but also leaving that place was great <laughs> no more baboons pissing on us in the night it's true they're there like it's you aren't people go oh it's not in the jungle it's like yeah it's in the jungle <laughs> there was a baboon that we called Brob because that's what he sounded like the whole time he he was in charge and he's like bit bigger than me and you'd see them he was up the front rob like that's what they they yell it's like a it's just a man yelling in the jungle rob rob and our and our whatsapp group is now called brob that and the only like all the people that i went on that show with are on this group and um we only use it to bitch about when the new series comes on each year and go Oh, they've got it so easy. This is <laughs> shit. They're not doing anything because nothing's been in the jungle since we were there. But, yeah, um, look out for those baboons. They're terrifying <laughs> and they would piss and shit on us in the night. And what a perfect place to end tonight. Yes. <laughs> As I said, this is Miss Voice. Um, it's all through this book. It is a brilliant memoir. If you haven't picked it up yet, you can get it from all bookstores. Highly recommend getting it from an independent bookstore. Um, and, of course, if you bought one with your ticket, then you can head down to the back and Miff is going to be signing books for you now. Can you please give a very big round of applause for the one and only Miff Warhurst. <laughs> And 
And can I say thank you so much to my beautiful friends, Anne Rowe, for giving me the Rolls Royce of interviews today, <laughs> but also being the best friend a girl could ask for. Thank you, Zan. Love you. Love you too. That was Zan Rowe in conversation with Miff Warhurst, recorded Tuesday the 8th of November 2022. This Melbourne City Reads event was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Melbourne City Reads series is generously supported by George and Rosa Morstan. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.